scripture reading for today, the Old Testament reading, Isaiah 65, 6 through 7. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. The New Testament reading, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing in our sermon series on 1 Peter, discussing how we find suffering and salvation in the exile. So, like Peter's audience, whom he was writing to in ancient Rome, uh, we are a scattered people, uh, ever under the present danger of persecution, uh, possibly even martyrdom, unjust circumstances. How do Christians keep hope in the midst of trials? This is the, the fundamental question that Peter is trying to answer here in this epistle. And if you've been following along with us, Peter has been rooting all the, the trials of the Christian life to look to Christ as their living hope, the one who has secured an inheritance for them, this, this future with which what this Christian knows for sure and, and is, has hope towards is the grounds for us to be able to not just survive, but thrive today. So Peter is wrapping up his argument here at the end of chapter 4 regarding suffering in these seven verses. And, you know, sort of all of Peter's favorite hits come out in these, in these seven verses. He, he frames it in this unique way that we'll examine and explore together. Uh, but before we do that, um, let us pray for the word of God preached. So let's pray. Father, you sent your son to endure the greatest shame, the greatest trials, not just simply to stand in solidarity with us in our pain and our trials, but to stand in our place on the cross uh, so that your people can share in his victory and his glory. Lord, we pray this gift of salvation freely offered here before us today would help us to persevere, not by fight or flight, but by the power of God who carries us through. And so be with your preached word today. May the Spirit of God work mightily in your preached word. In, in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So uh, let me start off by sharing a quick story. Um, I certainly don't look like it now, but in high school I used to be a cross-country runner at Wild Lake High School, uh, right off of Columbia. Um, 
uh, when I first started, it really wasn't by choice. Um, you know, see, I was this, if you can imagine, this very scrawny, unathletic freshman who got cut from the football team. I, I showed up to the football team uh, tryouts in khaki pants, and so the, the coaches just looked at me and went, you've got a great heart, kid, but, you know, I'm sorry. We've got to let you go. Um, and so at the suggestion of my sister, she said, you know, why don't, why don't you try cross-country? They, they don't cut anybody. Um, and so I started this sport at the surface level, and it really felt like school-sponsored torture. Um, every day after school, the coach would make us run around the track for a half-mile warm-up, uh, then followed up with running sprints for distance, and then followed that up with a long several-mile run around Columbia, Maryland's trails, and then followed that up at the end of the day with running about 10 to 20 hills to finish the day. Um, there is nothing in cross-country that screams glory or fame or even a shot that anyone would notice you in the school. Uh, we ran outside in the winter under freezing temperatures and faced unbearable heat in the summer. Uh, we couldn't even promote the sport properly to other people to, to have other people to join. Uh, see, there were these t-shirts bragging about cross-country with the slogan, uh, our sport is your sport's punishment. Uh, not really a great advertising slogan. Uh, one particularly embarrassing time, I remember this one uh, 5K run that was held at our school. Uh, you see, there was a scheduling error with the other sports practices, and it just so happened that the trail that we had to run for the 5K that day was going to cut right through the varsity football practice. So picture this. You've got 200 cross-country runners from all around Howard County, all the guys wearing short shorts and scrawny singlets, running through a football team during the race, you know, sort of the most macho of macho of sports. And as we were lining up for the race, all the varsity football players who were practicing were just laughing their heads off, right, pointing, probably discussing how they could tackle us out of our shoes with little to no effort. And the coaches, they had to yell at them for, for mocking us. But even, you know, the yelling that the coaches were giving weren't all that comforting. Hey, don't make fun of them or else I will make you run their race. Even the coach's rebuke revealed what they really thought of us. So the question started forming in my mind, do I really want to run this race right now? Humiliation often doesn't feel great. It's hard to frame why anyone would want to subject themselves to it. Unless you found something worth suffering the humiliation for. What if the thing you suffered under was really the key to understanding your purpose in this life, in this world, and what this world is really all about? What if this humiliation was actually understanding what it meant to worship God? Would it take you aback? Would it make you retreat? Would it make you shell up? Or would you step up to the starting line and embrace what you're about to endure and begin the race. Today's text is going to help us understand how we share in Christ's sufferings. And Peter wraps up his argument in these seven verses by stating three things that we'll look together. Uh, one, suffering is sharing in Christ's humiliation. Two, suffering is sharing in Christ's exaltation. And three, suffering is sharing in Christ's vindication. Peter wants the Christians who are about to endure persecution that, that suffering is not pointless, meaningless, shameful, random, or shocking. Uh, rather, he says, share in Christ's humiliation. 
share in Christ's exaltation, and share in Christ's vindication. And in this, Peter's trying to give the church hope and offering us hope here today. So let's start with suffering is sharing in Christ's humiliation. Peter begins by telling us not to be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. Now, since this was before the time when the emperor Nero was started burning Christians at the stake, Peter didn't have in mind when, he, when he's talking about fire trials about the, you know, sort of what was going on or what would go on in Nero's Rome. Rather, the language he's using of fiery trial here is that of a refining fire, uh, suffering that causes the Christian to be purified through testing. Think about like a fire that forges a metal to be stronger uh, than before. The fact that the Christians should not be surprised by suffering is no new idea in Peter's letter. Uh, he just spent the entirety of the earlier sections from chapter 2 to chapter 4 talking about all of its dimensions. But instead, in this verse, he's, he's frames it in a way that is entirely Christ-centered in the Christian's perspective. Verse 13 says that we should rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. For Peter, this could on the surface level uh, almost be seen as totally tone deaf to his audience. Is Peter suggesting that we should just grin and bear it as though nothing has occurred? Persecuted people are suffering and dying and Peter's calling us to rejoice and be glad? What is the meaning of this? Uh, This is not just some sort of power of positive thinking that Peter is advocating here. Uh, You see, for Peter, rejoicing is seeing suffering in light of the reality that we are following in Christ's footsteps. That our humiliation has a, 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 a focus, a person. That we aren't trying to put on fake smiles when we're enduring our worst pains. Rather, that we find solace in Christ's own suffering realizing that the mockery and persecution that leads to our humiliation is the same kind that Christ went in his life here on earth. And we're reminded as we reflect on Christ's life that his humiliation had these two components to it. One was the humiliation from the world that hated Jesus. Uh, the humiliation uh, that was sort of the, his, his opponents, right? the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Roman Empire, those who wanted to plot against his death, Uh, even those in his hometown who rejected him and and who feared him and begged him to go away. Uh, This first component was very much expected. We could easily expect, oh, Christ's message would be rejected by the world systems and religions around him. He was, after all, saying that he was the way and the truth and the life, that uh, that no one comes to the Father but through him. But we often forget about this second part of Christ's humiliation that he suffered from those who claim to love him, from those who claim to follow him, from those who claim who never leave him. Jesus' disciples were the cause of much frustration for him throughout his life. He often had to rebuke them. Even at his darkest hour, his disciples fled, particularly Peter, the writer of this epistle. The man who denied Jesus three times after posturing very loudly just the dinner before that even if all the disciples would leave, he wouldn't. It would seem right before the cross that even those closest to Jesus and ministry have shamed him, have humiliated him, have disgraced him. The very life that he was challenging and calling them to live. 
So if we share in Christ's sufferings, then we also too will share in these very kind themes of suffering. See, we're conditioned as Christians often to think about the world's hatred first for us when we think about humiliation. We are often, as Christians, blindsided, shocked, surprised when it happens within the life of the church and fellow Christians. I mean, after all, we break bread with each other each Sunday. We pray for another. We develop deep relationships. We, we don't often think about the humiliation and suffering coming from these sources and often are surprised and feel as though something strange is happening to us. You know, sadly, um, if there's one constant I've seen in ministry and in life is that often it's this second dimension of Christ's humiliation that does the worst harm for us. Uh, we don't think of it as a refining fire. And I'm not saying here that Christians should stay in abusive and harmful situations, far from it, but what I am saying here is that our perspective on such trials can often be to think that suffering has no purpose in the walls of the church, no redeeming value, and we are left to feel nothing but despair because we thought that the church could never be such a place. Uh, Christ's humiliation reminds us of these two things, that if it can happen with Jesus, and his disciples, uh, as we read in Acts and as we read in the epistles, uh, then it can happen in the church. In embracing the cross, we understand more of how glorious Christ is. Because the glory of Christ comes from his humiliation. The tragedy of sin and its horrifying reality places its full effect on him when he receives the Father's wrath on the cross. You see, it would not be something to consider wonderful if Christ didn't truly suffer for the full weight of sin, for the full weight of humiliation. Likewise, the Christian faith would not be genuine if it truly did not follow in Christ's footsteps, if it truly did not think about our lives as a living sacrifice in this way. You see, it is through the sufferings of Christ that we come face to face what he endured, the cost of our redemption. There are dates that remind me that I am uh, getting older and older and closer to seeing Jesus again. And uh, 2024 will be one of those years uh, because it marks the 20-year anniversary of this movie that came out called The Passion of the Christ. Right? 20 years. Right? Uh, now, even as I say that, I have just divided those rooms between those who are 37 and older and younger because the movie couldn't be seen if you were 17. All right? uh, for those who don't know what this movie is, Passion of the Christ was a brutal imagination of showing on a huge movie screen the sufferings of Christ in every gory detail. And it, it was very controversial. It split Christian churches for those who hold the second commandment regarding whether or not we could display God in such a fashion on how the movie set. Uh, but controversy aside, why was that movie so effective? Despite all the issues that we may have doctrinally in the way it was presented. My proposal to you is that I think for the first time that movie didn't sugarcoat the cross in the way that other movies prior to it had done. It didn't cover up the brutality of Christ's humiliation, the physical, emotional, and spiritual agony that Christ faced. It forced us to consider the real pain and sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And in doing so, asked us to reflect on what our sins really did to the Savior here on earth. What does it mean to share in Christ's humiliation? 
um, today, right now in this world. I am extremely grateful for the realization of our modern day that it's this phrase, you know, it's okay not to be okay. It sees a world wrecked by the effects of sin and the fall and acknowledges that something that probably previous generations might have missed, that, that we don't need to have it all together in front of others. And we certainly be, shouldn't be surprised if our lives aren't perfect in the eyes of others. Um, and okay, it's okay not to be okay rightfully casts the right vision on it. However, my concern as a pastor is that the solution that is often provided to it's okay not to be okay will be another form of pagan religion and philosophy of Peter's day. Uh, you know, there's this, some kind of secret wisdom, secret knowledge, a product you can buy, an experience of life that you can undertake that will somehow relieve your sufferings so that humiliation of any kind could be avoided entirely. My concern about this in this manner is just another backdoor to the health and wealth gospel, only with a bit more vulnerability. The gospel never promises this. And this is why perhaps across the world, Christians, uh, Christianity, I would say, grows in hard places more than in places of comfort and stability. Christianity doesn't sugarcoat the reality and pain of heartbreak, of rejection, of losing your friends and family because you choose to follow Jesus, of being betrayed even by fellow Christians. But instead, it asks us to lean more towards Jesus. Look to the cross. See a God who understands and who has suffered these things for you. This is important for us living where we are, and I promise, um, as I say this, not every sermon will make you feel bad for living in Howard County, but this is not that sermon. Uh, people ask me, what is the hardest part of ministry in a place ranked highly for its quality of life? My answer is almost immediate because it's so front and center. Myself included, by the way, in this discussion. This is where my idolatries lie. The hardest part about ministry here is convincing people that we need to suffer for Jesus and that this is normal in a place where privacy, individuality, comfort, and entertainment is the goal of the compartmentalized Christian life. People choose churches in the areas for what they can gain, they're entertained, and they'll give generously to a church as long as the church doesn't challenge them to sacrifice meaningfully for the marginalized, doesn't call them to repentance, doesn't ask them to be transparent about their sins, doesn't ask them to live incarnationally with those dealing with long-term despair, poverty, and affliction. You know, this sort of Stepford Christianity is one of the biggest dangers we have because it's devoid of suffering. It's devoid of humiliation. To quote loosely the biblical scholar Stephen Nichols, Either hope and redemption reside within human beings so we become the object of our own faith or hope and redemption lie in Jesus, the object and perfecter of our faith. You see, the greatest challenge for us to embracing humiliation is the notion that we even need Jesus to humiliate himself for us. And so we go into this place where, you know, God's strength is made perfect in our wealth, in our worth in our accomplishments, rather than God's strength being made perfect in our weakness. So we run from the suffering of Nineveh, like Jonas, and run towards the opposite direction to try and find a Christianity without the cross. Many of you might be familiar with the German pastor, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
uh, the German pastor who was ministering during the rise of Nazi Germany. Uh, now, while Bonhoeffer's theology is certainly up for debate, uh, what isn't up for debate is Bonhoeffer's commitment to experience the humiliations of Christ in fighting against what seemed to be unstoppable, the pervasiveness of Hitler and the rise of the populist German Reich. You see, the national church in Germany, under control of the nation-state, was told to eradicate Jewish thought from Scripture, was told to make Jesus Aryan and not Jewish in nature, and that any opposition to this idea would incur excommunication and removal from the church. My respect for Bonhoeffer comes from the fact that in July of 1939, um, and this is re recounted in a book by, uh, called Bonhoeffer and the Christian Life by Stephen Nichols, um, he had a chance to completely avoid the entire world war when he landed on the shores of New York City to give lectures under the ruse of his close friend of Union Theological Seminary whose intention was to have him do a short set of lecture, lectures there and stay in America to be free from the effects of the war. But as soon as Bonhoeffer gets off the boat and lands in America, he realizes that he has made a terrible mistake. He regrets the matter and instead writes a letter to his friend. Thank you for giving me safe passage here, but there's no way I can leave my church in Germany. He wanted to be there for them when things got serious. You see, for Bonhoeffer, the safety, the prosperity, and comfort of the American dream paled in comparison to sharing the sufferings of Christ's humiliation, even to death. This is what led for him to say uh, this quote, which is, almost seems shocking to us to hear, but consider the weight of this uh, in, in one of his seminal works on what it means to be a disciple. He writes this, Bearing the cross does not bring misery and despair, rather it brings provides refreshment and peace for our souls. It is our greatest joy. Here we are no longer laden with self-made laws and burdens, but with the yoke of him who knows us and who himself goes with us under the same yoke. Under his yoke we are assured of nearness and communion. It is he himself who disciples find when they take up their cross. Bonhoeffer would go back to Germany. Uh, strengthening the church and fighting against the Nazi regime from his pulpit and from his writings. He would die as a martyr, living the very words that he proclaimed, but knowing the satisfaction of what it meant to share in Christ's suffering. Uh, there is no denying that Bonhoeffer lived out Christ's humiliation. So Christian, what about you? Because sharing in Christ's humiliations means also not just staying in the valley, but our second point here today, sharing in Christ's exaltations. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter states that Christians are blessed when they suffer. This is not the same quip that we throw out when, you know, Christian meme world, right? We say, I'm too blessed to be stressed, right? You know, the sort of mentality of denying the reality of what's occurring around you. Uh, that's not the approach here that Peter is talking about. Sharing in Christ's exaltation is not a denial of what happened or overlooking the suffering you've undertaken. It's a blessing because of what Christ brings upon us, the spirit of glory and of God. 
You see, in Christ's exaltation, he gives to us the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Sent of God, given to Christians, will be glorified in the same way that Christ is glorified in his resurrection through union with Christ. It is in this that Christians become resilient to being mocked, insulted, or cast aside as exiles. Rather, the Spirit of God given by this exalted, resurrected Christ means that though we are mocked, we share an exalted place of glory rather than the lowly place of mockery. Verse 16 makes it plain. If anyone suffers as a Christian, uh, by the way, that word for Christian in verse 16 is literally translated Christ follower. Uh, That isn't a, a term that had positive connotations in Peter's day. It was actually like a slur given to Christians. You're a Christ follower, right? And he is transforming that word to not think of it as a term of mockery and insult, but rather as a term of honor and exaltation. Peter flips society's negative label on Christians and helps them to see the insult as a sign that they are sharing in Christ's exaltation, as a sign that they've received the Holy Spirit, as a sign that God truly has blessed them. But Peter caveats what the Christian is supposed to see as sharing in the exaltations of Christ versus what is not the exaltations of Christ in verse 15. Peter wants to make it clear that this suffering is not because of sin. Because Christians, unfortunately, can delude themselves all the time in thinking that the suffering they're undertaking is a part of Christ's exaltation when actually we are actually participating in sinful practices. In his book, Losing Our Religion, um, in writing about the January 6, 2021 insurrection, Russell Moore noticed that there were those who were storming the Capitol Hill who, while beating police officers and breaking through barricades, stealing items from the Capitol building and calling for the murder of several politicians, that there were some in the crowd holding a flag, waving it proudly with the words, Jesus saves. It was a flag that made Russell incredulous. How could anyone who professed the name of Christ believe that they were on this sort of mission from God to rob, steal, murder, and destroy? And it was sort of their God-given responsibility to fight back this great insult of an election result through dismantling and disobeying God's word to do so. Upon reflection, Russell realized that uh, this was because these so-called Christians believed that suffering, insulting, and mockery, uh, the only way to respond to this was not by Holy Spirit-filled fruit, but rather what he calls a depravity gospel that believes the demonic forces uh, that are placed upon the situation remove the humanity of the people that they disagree with. So it justifies even what God forbids. What they believe to be Christian in this depravity gospel, uh, says that the ends justify the satanic means of insurrection and violence and engage the culture war in ways that degraded the witness of Christianity across this nation and we still feel the effects of today. His concern for this was that it set up the American evangelical church to believe that they had permission to go in the same direction, believing that being a peacemaker and living the suffering of Christ's exaltation was weakness. Uh, He writes this in his book, Losing Our Religion. Um, By the way, if there's one book that you want to read about the relationship between church and politics today, this is 
by far the best book that has been released in the last year. Um, he writes this. Consider what's really going on when a great deal of what now passes for evangelical Christianity says, says that turn the other cheek and winsomeness won't work. The argument is often that such things are fine for a neutral culture, but not in this a hostile culture. Never mind that the Sermon on the Mount was delivered in Roman-occupied territory. If the American church thinks that turn the other cheek is surrender and weakness, then wait until they hear, take up your cross and follow me. To think that pretend Christianity, claiming the goals of Jesus while ditching his ways, a culture embracing Christian values without individual new birth, is somehow closer to Christ than is outright paganism, is the opposite of what Jesus himself told us. See, verse 15 reminds us that the kind of suffering that we should embrace is not one of ill-gotten gain in the name of Jesus. Rather, that instead we walk without shame, glorifying God in that name and living out the spirit which he has given to us. This is how the Christian is blessed. This is how the Christian shares in Christ's exaltation. What this means is that the Christ, when, the, when the Christian embraces suffering in Christ's exaltation is that humiliation does not have the last word. The Spirit of God in you makes sure of this reality. The eschatological hope is that justice will be served. If not in this life, then at the final judgment. God is glorified through your weakness and trials and sufferings in ways that you can't even begin to grasp and see. You exalt Him. This means that though you carry thorns in the flesh this morning, though you are wounded and feel as nothing you could do pro could proclaim God at all in your life, this is actually the precise place where God is exalted the most. The risen, exalted Christ, after all, has scars in His hands. And so do we. And this is what leads to Peter's conclusion on suffering. And that is that suffering is sharing in Christ's vindication. Christ is vindicated at his resurrection. The curse of death is no more. Satan has been defeated. Sin has been atoned for. And all the persecution of Christ has ceased. And that means the king who is on the throne will now come as the vindicated king to come judge the living and the dead. All true Christians will be vindicated from your sufferings, from the persecutions under the threat of death, from the insult and mockery, from sharing the love of Christ with others. Believers will share in that hope, Peter promises. But we are presented here with a sobering reality for those who do not believe in Christ. Peter presents two rhetorical questions here for those who don't believe. What will be their outcome, he asks. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter is begging the question. The reality is that if the Christian is vindicated, glorified, united to Christ, in sharing in his humiliation and exaltation, then this should lead us to the sobering reality of those who will not receive these benefits. That's why Peter ends in verse 19, telling the church to trust in their faithful creator while doing good. One of Peter's favorite phrases throughout 1 Peter. That those who have been vindicated are not in a position to gloat over their enemies, are not in a position to say, ha, we told you so, or demonstrate the arrogance of just being right. Rather, 
that they should be in the position for those who have been blessed by Christ to be a blessing to others in the act of great mercy that they did not deserve, to be, to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant of being a blessing to the nations, to love their enemies, to feed the orphan and the widow, to care for the needs of the poor and disenfranchised, to protect the innocent and the oppressed, to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. The vindicated Christian sees their sufferings in a way that goes out into the world Christ has called them to reach with his love. This is the mission of what we do as the implications of the gospel spread from this church outside its walls. So I'm with this. Um, I forgot to tell you what happened at the end of the cross-country meet. At the start of the story. Uh, the humiliation of running, right? And looking at all that was going on. Uh, so at the end of this race, Right? Uh, there was this stretch where you actually would run through the football field. Uh, we faced our very own football team, and the final stretch of this race towards the finish line was there. And you know, the football players were watching us run throughout this, this trial, uh, all 3.1 miles, uh, you know, trying to run this sort of six-minute, 30-second, uh, sub-minute pace. Uh, they saw the sufferings we were facing, and suddenly uh, their heart changed. Their mockery of us turned into real encouragement, right? Solidarity for recognizing the trials we were facing, that yes, our sport was indeed their sport's punishment, but the encouragement turned into respect, and suddenly, quite shockingly, cheers started overflowing from the football team. Come on, song, they yelled, right? Pointing at the other colored jerseys ahead of me. You can't let those Centennial Eagles beat you. Suddenly, the momentum was on. There are no stranger scenes in the world than watching the entire football team in pads cheering on a guy's cross-country team in short shorts racing towards the finish line. But for a brief moment in time, the humiliation of our varsity team was exalted and vindicated. And even though I had just finished running 3.1 miles, racing and sprinting towards the finish line, I couldn't help but laugh. Christians, we are called to share in Christ's sufferings for us as a means not for bitterness or resentment to gain a foothold, but a chance to share in the joy of Christ's redemptive work for us. A work that transforms us into people who look a lot like Jesus. His kindness, His love, His mercy, His forgiveness to a waiting world that, yes, will persecute you, yes, insult you, to a church that may hurt you even from the inside, yes, but in laying down our lives, we will understand the way of the cross and we will understand the great love that he has for you here today. So let's pray together.